Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe podcast. If you're just joining us for the first time, we kicked off a challenge a couple of weeks ago to write a novel with Dabble in 60 days. This challenge encompasses the yearly NaNoWriMo challenge while also adding a planning month to the mix. Five writers are going through the process of developing an idea, making a fully formed plot and plan, then executing the writing of a first draft in 60 days. Today we have a special episode of the podcast for you with one of the most prolific authors that I've had the pleasure of befriending over the years. Rick Partlow has written and published dozens and dozens of science fiction novels. In the midst of our Write a Novel in 60 Days Challenge, hearing from a writer that is putting in the work every day is greatly motivating, and I hope that you, like me, get excited by hearing Rick's story. If you're interested in the writing challenge, drop by storycraft.cafe and find all of the episodes in the Writing Challenge podcast series, watch the videos, and sign up to join in the challenge now. Thanks for listening. And we are live here in the Storycraft Cafe. I am your story barista, Hank Garner. Um, It's kind of a kind of a joke that uh, i'll have a tall half calf decaf latte please (laughs) oh full calf for me please um i'm just gonna go ahead and apologize uh up front here i'm gonna be sucking on uh cough drops as we do this because uh this morning here in the dirty south uh where rick is a native uh but is now an expat from um (laughs) Your, your weather decided to seep down here, and it's a frigid 50 degrees this morning, and it's got my, oh my, gosh. my sinuses. I know, to the burr. <laughs> oh, with the... With my uh, my my guest and friend Rick Partlow uh, is here. We we did this a couple of months ago, and Streamyard, uh, the platform that we're using here, just decided to go out to lunch and completely lost our recording. So uh, Rick was gracious enough to come back and and revisit us again. Um, Hopefully it'll work this time, knock on wood. Absolutely, absolutely. And and we have some folks joining us live, so welcome in. Uh, Rick is one of the most prolific authors that I've ever met. And, and, you know, Rick, from the the numerous times that we've chatted, um, you know, the there's no magic to doing what you do and putting out the kind of work that you do it's it's butt in chair hand on keyboard consistently showing up to do the work um how many releases do you have now and 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 i I say that let me quantify that right now you have four books that are up for pre-order on amazon one of them coming out next week and then three others uh from November, December, and March, if I'm remembering uh, right. So you, the the machine is is still uh, full steam ahead, right? It's hard to say that with uh, any certainty because I had a bunch of books that I self-published in my backlist that I have signed over to Athon Books to relaunch. So there's about seven books still that they haven't relaunched yet that were previously published that they're going to put new covers on new editing and, and yeah. uh, three of them they'll make audiobooks out of. Um, so the books that I have completed, uh, I've written 57 uh, that have been published, but seven of them, if you count the one that's coming out uh, next Tuesday, there's still seven of them. No, wait, nine of them that haven't been published yet. <laughs> wow. Because I, I, I have two new ones that still have to come out that are already finished. So what, um, 
you know, like you're you're the book that you're writing right now, because I know you're always writing on a book and and, um, you know, you're you're constantly posting on Facebook, you know, like 50,000 words in drop trooper number 84. Um, you know, I wish it was 84 and, already. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's a that's a that's a little joke. Um, but, you know, that's it's a it's a, a big motivator for a lot of people in the, in the writing community, because they're like, man, Rick is, is grinding out the words, you know, um, with the book that you're writing right now, where will it fall in your publishing calendar? Well, it's uh, the book I'm writing right now is drop trooper book 11. Um, it is scheduled for release way, way later than it's actually going to release it. See, it's, it's scheduled to be released March 21st, but I'm going to have it finished by the end of October. So I'm thinking it'll probably go out some sometime in December. Wow. Um, you, you talked about taking some of the books in your back catalog and uh, like Athon is, is um, repurposing some of those stories, you know, republishing, putting new yeah. covers on and kind of freshening yeah. up the marketing. Um, you know, that's, that's an interesting thing about fiction um, is that for the most part, and I'm, I'm going to quantify that because, or qualify that because I'm, I'm sure there's um, an argument against it, but for the most part, fiction has a, a pretty long shelf life. Um, you know, there's some nonfiction that doesn't always age well. Um, uh, you know, like um, 2000 reasons that the rapture is going to happen in the year 2000 probably didn't age <laughs> well, you know, 22 years after, but fiction. Hey, for hey, the most- I, my, my father was a Baptist preacher. So <laughs> the rapture has been going to happen every year since the mid seventies for me. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I grew up in, in that as well. And yeah, it's it, yeah. Um, but you know, fiction can have a much longer shelf life and there's, you know, I, I know a lot of authors that are kind of republishing some of their work from 20 years ago, 10 years ago. And uh, you know, you can put a new cover on it and, you know, update your blurbs and stuff and it can find a whole new audience. Um, especially futuristic sci-fi, you know, that that we're not in any danger of of running up on and the tech becoming, you know, obsolete or, or something, you know. That's already um, happened to me a couple of yeah. times. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, uh, what are some of the dangers of, of writing sci-fi and, and having things, you know, maybe not evolve the way that you dreamed well, I, that they would? I have a perfect example of that. Okay. Uh, the first series that I ever wrote, Duty Honor Planet. Yep. Still, I still consider it some of my best stuff. But yep. it originally was based when I, I I finished about half of that book, maybe a little more than half. Yeah. Uh, back in the mid, or the late '80s, when I was in college, I was handwriting it in a three ring binder with college rule paper. You know. And uh, it wound up being accidentally thrown out, and which was a good thing because it was based on a resolution of the Cold War that wound up being made false a year after, you know, Oof. I lost it. So <laughs> it, it 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 had like a a remnant of the Soviet Union still around. So I had to rewrite it anyway. And it's funny because I rewrote it in the mid nineties. And one of the, one of the main antagonists um, is a Russian uh, like wannabe dictator who's not communist, but is more just a dictator. And he's very, very similar to Putin. I'd never heard of Putin at the time. You know, Putin was just, was just a KGB agent or an FSB agent back then. So I had no idea who Putin was, but I had a character very much like Putin being in charge of Russia uh, when there was a, at the time of a nuclear war with China. And the Chinese uh, premier or whatever was a very uh, xenophobic and autocratic type that it's very similar in many ways to Z. So, you know, 
<laughs> some but, things work out, some things. Eh. <laughs> so it worked out that I had to rewrite that book. But um, also, there are some tech, technical innovations that I posited from reading um, things like Aviation Week and Space Technology, reading uh, the nonfiction uh, articles, I guess, in things like Jerry Pornell's There Will Be War anthology, where he talked about, I mean, I, I hated reading the short stories in those anthologies. I wanted the, the nonfiction part, but they speculated about uh, future weapon system. So I, I came up with a bunch of stuff that seemed very futuristic when I started writing these books in the late 80s. And now, not that long after they've been released, you know, they're still out, all this stuff has happened already, not, you know, a hundred years from now, but now. So it's, uh, that's one of the other dangers is if you stay in the business long enough, things that you predicted happening farther in the future happen now. And right. Right. People are like, Oh, that's, he's just have stuff, has stuff in uh, his universe 200 years from now that they already have in the military. <laughs> well, speaking of that, you know, um, uh, a lot of fiction, uh, I, w- I would dare say almost all fiction, uh, is, is is in some way a way for the writer to make sense of the world uh, around him or her um, by creating allegories. Or uh, allegory is not a not not a a, a good word always, but um, you know, fictionalizing the things that we're all going through and and finding ways to kind of play out the what if game if you will or to to postulate how the future might go um is there a danger in in doing that sort of thing with science fiction of of pontificating too much uh or kind of what's the role of a science fiction author in kind of trying to make sense of the world around him well i try not to i try not to make my future histories wishful wish fulfillment Mm. because if you look at any particular era in human history um looking there are going to be people looking back on it who consider it dystopian right and but for most of the people who are living in it it's just the way things were and a lot of them live happy normal lives and didn't notice that you know that their government or their society was you know, something that people hundreds of years of years or even thousands of years later would consider a nightmarish hellscape. So, you know, it's a, I try to make my futures realistic in tune with human nature and not, uh, I don't want to have the people that live in them thinking that they live in the worst of all possible worlds because most of the people probably do okay. And, you know, they, they complain about their government like everybody else does, but but most of them don't, you know, conspire to overthrow it because it's a, you know, a evil dictatorship. Right. Yeah. There's something to be said for just being present in the moment. And, you know, there's, uh, I guess the, the benefit of hindsight is, is being able to judge the past based on what you know now. And when you're in the moment, um, it's just life. It's, it's just the way it is. Exactly. Just, like, like everybody else, you're just trying to, to do the best thing you can at any given moment. Yeah. When, the only, the only time I may get into a little bit of wish fulfillment is when I, there's a couple of series where basically present day, Earth or near future Earth has the technology of interstellar flight thrust upon it suddenly. And I can't help but do a little, you know, golly gee, you know, silver rocket ship from the 50s wish fulfillment there. But uh, yeah, when it comes to future histories, I try to keep things more grounded. Speaking of silver rocket ships from the 50s, what, what was your. Um, what was it that got you into science fiction? Who were some of the authors that, you know, when you're a youngster that you read that just 
opened up your imagination. For for me, it was Heinlein um, primarily that just yeah, you know, that was that was me too. I went to I lived in Brandon, Florida, which is a suburb of Tampa, and the library there was pretty well stocked. And I remember checking out the hardback edition of Have Space It Will Travel over and over and over again. The old yellow one with the guy in the purple spacesuit. Oh yeah. And uh, that was, that was the first one. Um, I looked for things similar to that. And I don't know if you've ever heard of a book by a guy named Ted White called uh, secret of the Marauder satellite. I think I have, but that was a Heinlein. It was, it was intended to be a throwback to the Heinlein juveniles. It was written in the mid sixties, I want to say. And um, at the time, you know, I was, I was in the mid seventies and I was reading the Heinlein juveniles for the first time. So to me, they weren't something of, they weren't creatures of the fifties like they actually were. They were, you know, they were the first science fiction I was exposed to. So when I read Ted White's, um, homage to them to me it just seemed like more of the same and after i read all the highland juveniles i read you know asimov clark andre norton but i ran out of books in that vein because you know the the 50s and 60s ended and that, that era of science fiction was gone and it almost turned me off of science fiction period because I didn't like at all the stuff that was being put out in the seventies and early eighties. It was very nihilistic and depressing and pessimistic, very philosophical in ways that I didn't like. Well, I I was going to say that, you know, as someone who also grew up in the seventies and eighties, I would, um, I would get science fiction that was handed down to me, like from my uncle or from from older people in my family or, or you know, uh, friends of my parents or whatever. And I would look back at that science fiction and then go to the bookstore and look at what was being sold, like, say, the mid 80s when I was a, a teenager and and just think that this is not the same thing as this. This is, you know, like like they um, like I didn't. I didn't leave science fiction. Science fiction left me is the, the That's way I felt I about it too. I kind yeah. of drifted into a fantasy reading fantasy more at the time, because at least fantasy still had a kind of a hopeful feel to it. Exactly. Um, but what got me back into science fiction was cyberpunk. Um, there was a lot of bad cyberpunk and yeah. I found that out the hard way, but when it was done right, I loved it. Knockoffs. Yeah, but William Gibson, the original, uh, Walter John Williams, people like that. Um, when you have a book that is set in an unrelentingly uh, depressing and dystopian future, but that somehow by the end manages to be uplifting and give you hope, then that's like the ultimate achievement. And that's the first books that I wrote. I tried to blend the 1950s style of silver rocket ship, starship, all that stuff with, uh, with the cyberpunk, with the whole uh, one man or a few people against, you know, the establishment against every, everybody against them, you know, right. Achieve, you know, achieving victory despite the odds. I tried to blend those together, and that's uh, that's what really influenced my style of writing science fiction. Well, we we saw that that first wave, the the silver age, if you will, of science fiction and the silver rocket ships and stuff like you talked about. And then you know the next generation was uh, more pessimistic, if you will. And now we're coming back around to. Uh, there's still some of that pessimistic science fiction out there, but there's, there's also a lot of it. Yeah. There, but there's and also, unfortunately it wins a lot of the awards too. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and maybe that's a, that's a separate conversation right there, but the, the whole award structure and publishing. Um, but there, there's also um, this, this 
this upswell of of uh, hopeful science fiction again. And do you think that that is a trend in publishing or is well it's obviously a trend in publishing but is that caused by a change in the the thought process of publishing or it definitely is it, go ahead it, sorry is it is it um is it because of self publishing and the rise of small presses like athon and and different yeah, folks I'd like say that de- definitely giving is. a voice back to to people who want something different there, see, the thing is, the market for these stories has always been there. It right. never went away. Right. Um, what The only thing that changed was the people who were in charge in the traditional publishing houses. I mean, you still have uh, Bain, which is a fairly small traditional publisher that still write, still publishes uh, science fiction and fantasy in the same vein that you know you and I grew up with. Right. But for most of the larger houses, there's a disconnect from the fan base. Um, the people who own these companies used to be families. And right. they were rich, obviously, and they lived in New York. But they at least they loved the literature that they were, they were putting out. They had a connection to it. They did this because that was what they loved to do. And their family had been doing it for, you know, dozens or hundreds of years or whatever, probably not hundreds. I mean, books have only been around a certain, (laughs) but uh, they've been doing it for generations. Yeah. Now the companies are owned, you know, publicly, you know, they're, they're, they sell stock, you know, they're, they're not family owned. They've been bought out and bought out and bought out and conglomerated. And the people who they've put in charge are the one there's two two like layers of them the people on top are the ones who just want the profit and what that means and that started in the 90s is they take fewer and fewer chances on new authors and if they bring new authors in the advances get lower the marketing they do for them gets lower the uh, authors are expected to do more marketing themselves and that's fine the answer that's a reality of the economy. But the other side of that is those people who are in charge are not connected to the fan base and the people they trust to make those decisions are not connected to the fan base either. They're connected to a literary bubble. They know what they like, what they like to read, but they all live in New York city. You know, they, they aren't they aren't connected to the average fan of, of, of genre fiction. So you had this market that's been out there. I mean, I know that's why I wrote science fiction. That's why I tried to get published is because nobody was writing what I wanted to read. And come 2011, when Kindle, the Kindle, uh, Kindle publishing revolution started, well, it started in 2010, but I jumped in yeah. the bag mine in 2011. Um, <clears throat> people started putting out stories like the ones they read when they were kids and there was a huge market for it. And people made hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of dollars put, putting out books, some of which weren't that good, some of which were not well edited, which had bad covers, including mine. Uh, <laughs> but they sold because people were so hungry for that style of fiction. And I mean, now things have kind of reached a, you know, a a tipping point because there's so many writers out there and so much fiction from small presses and and self-published authors that, you know, you can't just throw, like I, I was reading a Facebook post I put out in November of 2011 when I first put out Duty on Our Planet. I self-published it in uh, like August of 2011. And with no marketing, no ads, a homemade cover, and improper formatting, that book was at number 186 in the whole Kindle store in November of 2011. But you couldn't do that now. No matter how good your book is, no matter how good the word of mouth is, without marketing, without a professional cover, without 
formatting and editing, you could not do that. But I could do it back then because people were hungry to read what they what they'd been wanting to read for 20 years and what the traditional publishers hadn't been putting out. And now um, I think you would think that the trad pub, you know, industry would learn from that, but it doesn't seem like they do. It seems more like they're stratifying more that they're all they learned was online marketing, but they haven't learned that these are the kind of books that there's a market for. I, I hear all the time in fantasy, uh, people who are in trad publishing or, or writing articles or writing like uh, recommendations for fantasy writers. Yeah. Well, we, we want something different. We don't want, you know, a medieval European based fantasy with elves and dwarves and orcs and dragons. We want something different. We want, you know, Asian based or South American. And that's all fine, but there's still a market for medieval European based fantasy with elves and orcs and dragons. And because people buy it all the time. Right. And when you say we want something different, they're not, that's the problem with trad pub is they're not saying we want something different and we want to do the same thing too. And just have both. They're saying, no, there's been enough of this. We're going to do something different, but all those people still want to read those stories. Well, that that's something that our friends in uh, in romance publishing um, have learned. You talk to any romance author that is successful, there are, um, and and uh, our, our romance listeners are going to skewer me for this, but there are like five different kinds of romance stories, and there's uh, you know the the enemies to lovers, there's the meet cute, there and you know several others, and and they all. F- I haven't seen the lovers to lovers to enemies one. Is that a thing? <laughs> <laughs> that, that might not be a romance then. I don't know. Oh, okay. Um, 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 it, but yeah, that, but there are, there are certain tropes. There are certain, um, story elements that readers expect and, and you deliver those things and you just find a new way to tell those same kinds of things. So w- when you say that, you know, a publisher says, well, well, people don't want this anymore. And you're saying, yes, they do. You just need to find a new and innovative way to, to meet those reader expectations. Um, well, and, and that's the thing when it came to throwing the baby out with the bathwater, when it came to science fiction and fantasy, when the self-publishing boom hit, these weren't even new ways of telling those stories. A lot of them, a lot of them, we're just retelling the same old stories in the same old ways. Right. People want to read those same old stories in the same old ways too. I mean, they, they want, they want you to do something new with it. They prefer that you had a new spin on it, but if you don't, they still want to read it. <laughs> Cause, Cause this is what they like to read. That's what, that's what trad pub doesn't seem to get. Most of them. Um, like I said, Bain's different. There's probably a couple others, smaller publishers, but the, the big guys, they don't get that people want to read what they want to read. They don't want you to tell them what they should read. So um, you you put that first book out. It went bonkers uh, sales-wise, and you realized, oh, my goodness, I, I, I might have um, you know done something that that I wasn't prepared for. Um, when did your life change? When did your when did you go from um, a guy who writes as a hobby and publishes to um, it looks like I'm going to be a full time author now? And like, when did that changeover happen? And was there a change in your mindset as far as um, okay, this is this is what my my daily routine needs to be to maintain the sort of you know habits that I've that I've put into place well when i first put out birthright and duty on her planet those were the, those were the two books that i had written intending to get them trad published back in the mid to late 90s i had an agent uh she shopped them around did not get picked up and i was pretty like ready to just give up i mean i st- I, I kept trying to write but 
I never had like the incentive to finish anything because those didn't, those, those seemed to me like the best I could do and they didn't get picked up. Pause there for just a second. I, I, I don't know your, your sales numbers, but I'm hundreds of thousands of books you have sold. Um, you, you, if not more, um, and, and you couldn't find anyone to publish those first books and, and, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of readers have have found those now and connected with them that that tells you right there the disconnect in publishing i mean i i don't i don't know for sure that they made the wrong decision because they're thinking of it as a bit i mean especially back in the late 90s yeah they were thinking of purely from business basically in the late 90s early 2000s to break into science fiction for any genre publishing, really, uh, you had to really catch somebody's eye, you know, find somebody who would read your book, or you had to have short stories published and somebody noticed you. And then usually they would ask you to write something in a uh, established, uh, you know, established franchise like right. star Wars or star Trek, you know, that type of thing. Um, but anyway, I I had given up on being published. I still wrote, but I like I said, I had a hard drive full of you know twenty thousand word or thirty thousand word fragments of novels. Because when we got to the muddy middle, I just stopped. <laughs> um, so when I published in twenty eleven those two books, um, I sold. I want to say something like thirty thousand copies of those two books in the first like couple months that they came wow. out. And this was not a lot of money because I didn't know what I was doing. I priced them both at 99 cents, but you know, I made in half a year, I made like over $10,000 on those two books. So I was like, I wasn't thinking, Oh, this is a, this is a career. I was not right. thinking that. <clears throat> it's a very but successful I, hobby at this point. That I was thinking, this is something I can make. This is a side gig. You know, I can make some extra money. I should write more books. Yeah. So I figured that the best thing to do would be to write more books in those two series. And so everybody kept asking, when's the next book in this series? So I wrote two more books in Duty on Our Planet. And because I was still thinking like a traditional author and because I was a pantser, it took a year each to write those two books. And it took nearly a year to write the two books to finish off the birthright trilogy. And I was making, you know, just a few thousand dollars a year. Cause I was right. Putting out a book a year. I was not marketing at all. My covers sucked. I didn't know anything I was doing. And at the time, I mean, I'm sure there were blogs out there, yeah. but there was no, there wasn't the kind of support system there is now sure. for, for self-published authors. So I didn't know what I was doing. I was making a few thousand a year, which seemed to be enough to pay for me sitting around for, you know, an hour a day, putting out a couple hundred words. Um, then in 2016, I put out Enemy of My Enemy, the, the, the third book in that Birthright trilogy. Yeah. And the main character in that trilogy had uh, been in a war before the trilogy started. And I had originally planned to write the book of that war first, but I stopped back when I was trying to get published, figuring that uh, the aftermath of that war was a more interesting story. But I had all these little ep excerpts and snippets and stories that I told about his experience in the war from those three books. And I said, I need to just write that book because I've got it all plotted out. I know how it happens from beginning to end. And it was like 120,000 more book. It took me three months to write, which, you know, was a lot shorter time because I outlined everything I had to, it wasn't like I wanted to become an outliner. It was that I had to do it right because I'd already told part of the story before and I had to make sure I didn't contradict myself. So I put that book out in the end of 2016 and in January of 2017, with the from the benefit of that book and the collected trilogy, mostly and Duty on Her Planet was also up. I made like twenty eight thousand dollars in a month 
And I'm like, I should probably write more books. <laughs> and, um, so I started outlining because it seemed to me that if I put books out, you know, quicker, that it, there was a, there was a people who wanted to read them quicker. So I started outlining, started writing. I think in 2017, I wrote eight books in that one year when the most I'd ever written before in one year was two. That was the year before. Um, and then it, from that point on, I pretty much have been a full-time writer. I mean, I kept, I kept my day job for a couple more years, but it was the money I made from that was dwarfed by what I made from writing. So I, I kind of kept it just, uh, I got a habit. <laughs> right. Right. We're, um, we're doing a writing challenge right now. The, the write a novel in 60 days would dabble. And, um, we're, we're, because next month is NaNoWriMo national novel writer, uh, writing month, um, where you write 50,000 words in 30 days. You know, it, it's a challenge to prove to people that they can write a novel in a, in a, compressed amount of time. Um, and then we're doing the 30 days prior to that to work on planning and, um, you know, trying to uh, kind of solidify the idea that planning your work ahead of time will make the writing go easier. Um, in that transition for you going from a pantser to a plotter, you know, planner, um, there, most people are very hesitant um, to switch over because, and there, there's so many reasons. Oh, I was. Why, <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, it probably goes back to middle school English and, you know, having to write out outlines and how excruciating that was and nobody liked it. And, and it, you know, taking that mindset and bring it into your creative life just doesn't seem to, to jibe, you know? Um, but when you went through that conversion, um, process to to dip back to your Baptist dad's uh, vernacular there when when you were uh, converted over to a uh, to a a plotter what what were some of the um, what were some of the hurdles that you had to get over to switching the way you think about stories? Well, um, it wasn't exactly a hurdle. Um, I did not. <laughs> I was, I was very hesitant to become an outliner because I had so much fun pantsing. For me, yeah. pantsing a novel was almost like reading a novel written by somebody else or watching a movie happening in front of my eyes because there were so many times in both of those first two series that I pantsed that things would happen and I'm like, holy crap, I didn't see that coming. You know, it just, I mean, seriously, I, yeah. I wrote it and I'm like, Oh, that can't be right, can it? Like, yeah, this is the only way it could be. I just let the characters guide it, and that's fun. It's a lot of fun, but I knew I couldn't keep doing that. I pretty much knew that if I wanted to make a living at this, that I could not take months to write a book. And the only way that I knew to shorten the process was to outline thoroughly. So there really was no hurdle at that point. It's not like I... Like, oh, I don't want to do this. I'm going to have to. No, I, I just like, if, if this is, I've, I'd always wanted to make a living writing. And pretty much I knew that if I wanted to, this was how I was going to have to do it. So I just did it. I, I, I guess that's kind of a mercenary uh, attitude to take, but I did it. I, I outlined because that's where the money was. That's how I could make money was by outlining. Well, either mercenary or, or just being a realist, um, yeah. you know, that, that's just a fact of, uh, you know, if you're, I mean, not everyone is Stephen King and can, you know, just uh, push through the the murky middle when you have no idea what's going to happen. Well, that's why Stephen King has such crappy endings. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> to, the, to the point that he had, does a cameo in that last It movie where he talks about his endings that, that yeah. don't stick, which is which was hilarious that he was self aware enough to. I've only finished two Stephen King novels. Yeah. And both of them, I was just enraptured by how good the writing was, and then I got to the end, and I'm like, "Oh, that can't be the end." I mean, the worst <laughs> offender for me is The Stand. Yeah, literally, literally, not even a figure, a literal deus ex machina. The hand of God reaches down and sets off a nuclear weapon. <laughs> That's how you end the book. <laughs> yeah, 
that's that that's when you're just tired of writing. And, exactly. Yeah. And you're like, well, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna wrap this up. Oh man, um, Rick, what is a what does a, a, a typical day look like for you? What, what's your writing life like? I, I know you have a, a schedule with, you know, a production schedule that you have to meet. So so what does that look like in practical application? I don't know if I'd recommend my <laughs> method to anybody else because it's very, very haphazard. Um, and I can get away with it because I have my kids are grown and I don't have an outside job. So I you know, I pretty much can sit here and do what I want all day long and wake up when I want. But for me, I get up and usually I cannot start my brain working on writing until sometime around lunch. I mean, I will do administrative stuff before that. I will do, you know, emails and, and everything else that I need to do for the business side of it. But I can't really get creative until I've really woken my head up. I wake up usually around 7.30 or 8 o'clock. And sometimes a little earlier if, if my dog wakes me up, which he did this morning. Uh, but I can't really get my head wrapped around the work until about noon. Um, I will write. Depending on how many things I'm working on at once, like right now, I'm only working on one book, which is not usual for me. But I I have a schedule, and I had to get a certain number of books done by the end of the year, and I have two left. So the one I'm working on right now is book 11 in the Drop Trooper series, and I am so familiar with those characters and the setting and everything that's going to happen that it was very easy for me to write a more truncated outline than usual and be able to just fill it in. But to do that, I have to just concentrate on this one book because the other book that I have to finish is in a new series and I haven't decided on some of what's going to happen. And it's going to take a lot of time for me to sit down and outline it. So rather than write an outline for a drop trooper and then write an outline for this other book and then try to jump in on both of them, I'm like, I know I can write Drop Trooper 11 faster if I just do it. So I'm only writing 3,000 words a day, which I usually do four. I usually do two books, 2,000 words in each. But since I'm only doing 3,000 words, I will write 1,000 words between lunchtime and about three. And then I will go to the gym, come back, uh, eat dinner, and write 2,000 more before I go to bed, which usually winds up being 11.30 or 12 or 12.30 last night. <laughs> but um, that's, like I said, that's just because I have no other commitments. I don't have to go to yeah. my kid's soccer practice or, you know, do all this other stuff that a lot of people do have to do. But right. since I have this situation and I'm taking advantage of it. Heck yeah. Um, but if I'm working on two books at the same time, what I will do is I will try to get started probably about nine or 10 and I'll get 2000 words written on one book before three o'clock when I go to the gym. And then after dinner, I'll work on the other book 2000 on that one. Drop trooper aside, um, because that's a special circumstance, but in, on a, on a typical book, what, what do your outlines look like? How detailed do your out, outlines get? They're very detailed. I usually wind up writing for a hundred thousand word book, maybe a fifteen thousand word outline. Oh wow! So basically, what my 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 outline is almost a really really rough first draft with no dialogue. Um, I start. I do what's called well, a version of what's called fat outlining, mm -hmm. uh, where you. What for me, I do is the first thing I start out with is I will write a detailed synopsis of the plot, basically just telling the story of what happens. This happens, this happens, then this happens beginning to end. So like then, if you were sitting down with a friend telling them right. about this book, this, this would be kind of the dump that you would give a friend. Exactly. And I will, then I will take that dump and I will split it into sentences or sometimes two sentences and put those in chapters. And then once I have that, 
once I have an idea of what's going to happen in each chapter, I'll expand on that. I will like tell that same kind of telling a friend thing. I'll do that for each chapter. I will, I'll write like a synopsis of each chapter and then I will go back or possibly at the same time, depends on how I feel about it and put like, if there's multiple points of view, I'll say this is from this person's point of view. Uh, or if there's two scenes in a chapter, this one's from this person's point of view, this one's from the other person. I'll say where it happens, what time of day, what's the weather like? Um, you know, are there are there any special things in their surroundings that would would stick out? Uh, you know, is it cold? Is it hot? Is it raining? Uh, is there some kind of smell? A lot of people forget about smells in books, by the way. I've noticed that a lot. <clears throat> pardon me, um, that you're in a situation where you're going to be smelling some really bad things and people ignore it. And I've yeah. been in situations like that. You can't ignore it. it right. almost, it's almost overwhelming. I mean, I've never been in a situation where my life was in danger, but I've been in situations where I had other things that I should have been concentrating on and something yeah. smelled so bad that you can't ignore it. And then that happens in real, it's a, in military science fiction, you're in combat. That's all the time in combat. Mm. I have a lot of friends who are in combat. And one thing they always mention is the smell. So you well, the, the smell is intrinsically tied to memory in, in ways that no other senses are like you can walk into a room, smell something and you're instantly transported. Uh, my grandfather, for instance, uh, chewed Levi Garrett chewing tobacco. And uh, if I walk in a place and if I smell that, I'm instantly eight years old again. And, and I, you know, I, I'm completely transported in a way that seeing, um, you know, a work shirt like he wore doesn't like like it can be a memory, but it's not an all encompassing memory the way smell is. That That's a great tip that. Writers need to to focus on that more because that that is something that everyone can relate to. Another thing um, that gets ignored a lot in science fiction in general, in military science fiction in particular, is music. Yeah, I, and I don't do this as much as I, as I should, but music is a big part of people's lives and. Yeah. Just like with smell, you hear a song, it takes you back. Exactly. So I'd like to, when I can, when it's possible, you know, just mention the fact that these people are people and they're, you know, they listen to music, they watch movies, they read books, you know, they're, they're actual people. They don't just pick up a gun and go out and fight and then have no life outside of that. Right. And that, that's something that not only military science fiction, but a lot of futuristic science fiction in particular, just pretends like that when the 21st century is over, music just ceased to exist. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. you know, and, and one, maybe one, it's one, one genre maybe that does, wants to chase those trends. Or I, I don't know what. One genre that does attempt to do that somewhat is uh, cyberpunk. Yeah. There's, I see a lot of focus on entertainment, music, video games, movies, right. and different in, in cyberpunk. But uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of military science fiction, you'd think that these people were robots that all right. they do is fight and eat and get letters from home right <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny it's so funny um yeah the, I, I guess it's good to to check up on your tropes every now and then and make sure that that they uh but you know, getting back to the, the outline though um uh, that's the kind of thing that i'll put in and i will if i think of any special lines of dialogue that should be put in that uh, chapter. I'll do yeah. that. And by the end, you've got sometimes as much as a page per chapter, uh, but usually about a half a page, maybe three quarters of a page. So it works out to a really, really big outline. And oddly enough, the, uh, the um, writing of the outline itself is uh, almost enough that I don't have to look at it while I'm writing the book. I mean, sometimes I have to go back and 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 get a look at, you know, the circumstances of something, but pretty much the story itself, 
I will already know without even looking at the outline. I'll know where I am and what I have to do just from the writing of it. You have several series that are um, uh, numerous books. Um, when you're looking at a series, how do you tell as the writer um, this series has more life in it? I could tell another book or two or three books. And then how do you look at a series and think this one's done? I, I, I've got nothing left to say or the characters have nowhere left to go or readers are sick of, you know, this particular scenario. Like, how do you know when, when, when uh, a series has reached its expiration date? Um, I don't want to sound too, too um, cold hearted and harsh, but pretty much if it stops selling and then I stop writing it. And if it's still selling, then they keep writing it. <laughs> Well, I mean that that can sound callous and harsh if, if you want to, but but that is a very real um, uh, th that is a um, uh, that is a, a a measure of whether it's connecting with readers or not. If it's not it selling, is. then no one's reading it, and if no one's reading it, then why are you writing it? And pretty much, I have found uh, that you can bring new life to any story if you if there's an incentive for you to keep writing it and you can end any story uh not anywhere but you know like within within three to four books for certain you can end any series and and end it in a satisfying way but you know it's a it's a question of return on investment because you know i spend a lot of time each day writing and when you think of uh, the amount of money the average book makes, I mean, my, I've been lucky. Some might have done pretty well, but on the, in the return on investment of the average book is not very much in, as far as uh, what you're being paid per hour. Right. right. <laughs> so, so you have to think of it in, in yeah. terms of a, of a, a lifelong product that could keep well, I mean, if you're if you're writing because it's what you love to do, and you don't really care about the money, if you have a, another job, this is a hobby, that's great. If it was a side gig, that's awesome. And I mean, it's great being able to do that. But I'm not rich, and yeah. I'm making a living at this, so I have to think about. There are stories that I want to tell. Can I tell them in this series with these characters? And if I can and people are reading this series, but not this other series, then I can keep telling those stories with these characters and tell them just as well. Well, um, we'll, we'll wrap up with, with this question, but um, when, when you think in terms like that, um, you know, for, for whatever reason, um, writing uh, has this um, attachment to it where um uh, some some people are like this is an this is an art form and and you should write for the art of it and and then uh, you know the practical reality is well I'm a human being who needs a place to live and food to eat <laughs> and you know so and writing is a way that I can provide those things for myself and for my family um, th those two camps um, are are not um, as uh, you can you can do both is what I'm saying. Do you ever uh, have these thoughts of of art versus commerce, or is that just a silly argument that that is only made by people who have academic jobs and and don't have to worry about paying there's two the types, bills? There's two types of people who concern themselves with whether their writing is art enough, and that's people who already have a successful writing career yeah. and, and contracts and don't have to worry about whether their book's going to sell because they already have the advances and those who will never make any money at it. Mm. You, you, you can put your art into what you write, but the most important thing for what you write is not your art or your loyalty to your art. It is, writing something that people want to read 
people don't necessarily want to read your art. You may want to write your art, and I understand that, but that doesn't mean there's a market for it. Right, right. Uh, I have seen so many writers talk about art, and it always seems to fall in one of those two categories, the people that were already successful. And that's a very incredibly small percentage of those who write for art's sake and are that concerned with art. There's a tiny sliver of a percentage of them that are successful. And the rest never will be. Well, speaking of commerce, what's what's uh, your next release? You've got one coming out next week. What What is that? I have the relaunch of book four and the Birthright. <laughs> well, it used to be the Birthright trilogy. And then when I when Athan decided to relaunch it, they put Glory Boy in his book one instead of mm. a prequel, which made sense. I had thought about doing that myself. Uh, never got around to it. So now it's a four book series. And Enemy of My Enemy is the fourth book, and it will be coming out Tuesday. Um, after that, I believe the next one to come out is book two in the Gates of Eternity series, which is a new one. Gates, uh, of, Gates of Eternity is the... Is the oh. Oh. We lost Rick. Let's see if we can get him to reconnect here. Sorry about that, folks. Well, as Rick was saying, Gates of Hope uh, comes out November 8th. It is the second book in the Gates of Eternity uh, series. Oh, here's Rick. Hey, there you there you are, Rick. I was just telling folks that Gates of Hope is the name of that book, right? Gates of Hope comes out November eighth, and that is uh, those are the next two I've coming out, and then Earth at War book six should be coming out sometime next month. It's kind of up in the air. It was originally scheduled to come out in December, but it's it's done. So, is that Allied Powers? Yes. Excellent. Excellent. Well, uh, Rick, always a pleasure to uh, to hang out and, and to catch up um, an inspiration to the writing community. And uh, we, we love what you're doing. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Hank. I appreciate yeah. it. Absolutely. And uh, Amazon, we'll put a link where all of your books, uh, you know, we can locate it there. But is there a, a, a website where if people want to you have sorted out by series and all of that sort of stuff? Um. First, on my Amazon author page, by the way, I have a suggested reading order. Okay. So a lot of people ask me about that. It is that, right there. Yeah, that's my, what I was asking about. My like, Amazon where, author page. Where do you um, jump in to the part low verse? Uh, I also have a, a author blog, which is rickpartlow.com. Rarely post there, unfortunately. Uh, I also have a author Facebook page, which is facebook.com backslash duty honor planet. And that's the best place to contact me. I check it regularly. People can message me there. Uh, The blog, I post there every once in a great while. So (laughs) awesome. Well, we'll post links up to the, uh, to the Amazon page and to the reading order. Uh, I'll try to drop it in the, in the YouTube um, description here later. And then Friday, we'll probably release this as an audio podcast and we'll be sure to put it there. Also, well. if, if you are interested in being kept up to date on all my new releases, I do have a newsletter. And there's a link to that. Um, I think there might be one in my Amazon author page description, but there's definitely one on duty, facebook.com backslash duty on our planet. I was just looking to see if I could. Yeah, there there is one on your uh, Amazon page as well. Okay. So, awesome. We'll be sure to put that in the notes as well. Uh, Rick. Always a pleasure. Thank you, buddy. Thank you, Hank. That's our episode for today. There's so much more to come as we talk to authors about the craft of writing, but also the business of publishing. Be sure to subscribe to the StoryCraft Cafe podcast in your favorite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. The StoryCraft Cafe is made possible by Dabble. Writing a book is challenging, your writing tool should not be. 
Dabble is an easy-to-use online writing tool packed with helpful features that allow beginning novelists and published authors to create amazing stories. Visit us at dabblewriter.com and start your free trial today. Thanks for listening.